You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. I wanted to kind of explain, because I know we have a lot of visitors today, just how our kids structure works on a Sunday morning. Um, what we do, and we're actually starting this next week at 9.30. At 9.30, uh, we have a discipleship opportunity for uh, students that are sixth grade up through high school. And so um, at 9.30, we have kind of a, a Sunday school type uh, set up, um, but it, it's meant to model what we're trying to accomplish in our church from a small group accountability standpoint. And so we're encouraging our sixth graders all the way up through high school. We're pairing them up with uh, some of our college students, some of our single adults, um, and allowing them to invest in them. Um, we're actually having a meeting next week at 9.30 with parents and students that that affects to uh, make sure that we're on the same page with the parents. And so um, right now specifically, this only we only have uh, boys that will be a part of it, but as the Lord brings more families, um, we'll be calling upon women in our church as well. Um, but we're going to have a meeting with uh, some of our dads and make sure that we're accomplishing what we need to in supporting what's going on at home. Um, we believe that uh, we need to be in partnership with the family in raising up children here at Sovereign Hope, that it's not something where you just drop your kids off and we'll take care of them and send them back to you when we're done. We want to be in partnership. Um, and so that's for our kids sixth grade up through high school. And then at 10 o'clock um, during the first part of our worship hour, um, I meet with uh, our kids that are in third grade uh, up to sixth grade. Um, and the purpose of that is to teach them how to come and sit and glean from what I'm teaching everybody else. Um, and so the, the, the hope there is that I basically pre-teach what I'm going to teach you guys on their level, give them some things to think about, give them a point of reference so that when they come in here, it's not completely over their head, that they've, they've worked through it some with me. We dismiss like we did today, come in here, sing as a family, worship together as a family, and then we take our four-year-olds up to second grade uh, into a class with a different teacher, a different teacher each week. We have several women that rotate through that, and we're just taking them through the entire Bible, um, giving them an overview of Scripture. We started in the Old Testament. We're almost done with the Old Testament. We'll be moving into the New Testament, and then we've got our nursery, which is for newborns up to the age of three. That's a quick overview of how we've structured kids here, just so that you're familiar with it, so that you kind of know Um, where your kids uh, probably need to go and and how we kind of thought through uh, that process for them. All right, I'm going to pray for us again just to get us focused back on Scripture and what God wants to teach us and instruct us in this morning. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you again that we have the opportunity to be a part of this church, that we have the Bible in a language that we can read and understand. And God, as we strive to, uh, to proclaim it today, Uh, proclaim what you've said, and then uh, to proclaim uh, the meaning behind that. Father, I pray that you would encourage us, convict us, instruct us. Um, God, I pray that you would inspire us uh, as we leave today and approach another week. Um, Father, that we would be very intentional with the gospel. We'd be very intentional about uh, keeping our focus on heavenly things over earthly things. Um, Father, that we would be... uh, uh, about your business in in expanding your kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that today as we continue our discussion in Genesis, that you would use that as an encouragement, as as an appeal for us to worship you as you deserve because you've created us with that responsibility. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so we began last week with our study in Genesis. And so we began with Genesis 1-1. And so uh, if you're there in your Bibles, you can see uh, it's one of the basic verses that we learn when we're young. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We said that as a church, we're studying the book of Genesis. Yes, it's an Old Testament book. Uh, it would It would... Uh, at times maybe seem more logical to study something in the New Testament, something that's closer to relevance for today. And yet we, we understand that the book of Genesis gives us our framework for why we do much of what we do. Um, and so we're going back to the very beginning, to the book of Origins, to better understand why we have structured our life the way that we have. So that as we seek to share the gospel, as we seek to disciple other people in the things of Jesus, that we have that foundational understanding that we're unified in that as to why we do much of what we do, why we view the world the way that we do. The Christian worldview flows from our understanding of the book of Genesis. And what we found and what we're approaching this book as is that there's no conflict between science and God's word. There's no conflict between God's general revelation and God's special revelation. So general revelation is what God has revealed to us through creation. Special revelation is what God has revealed to us through his written word. God is the author of both. And so we can expect that there would be no conflict between both forms of revelation. That he's revealed to us things about himself through creation. And he's revealed things about himself that's not known in creation in his word. Right? So Romans testifies that we can know about his power, his deity, his, his eternal nature, just by looking at creation, we learn about his love and his mercy and his grace as he begins to act out in creation. And we have that recorded for us in his word. And there's no conflict between science and scripture, even though many in our culture today would have us believe that. We said that ultimately this book's going to point us to Jesus being in control of everything. We started by seeing that Genesis is not really the true beginning, that before God created, he had plans, plans in place that he planned to bring into being as he created, that he doesn't react to his creation, that before time began, he had thought through what creation would look like, and that ultimately this book points us to restoration in the book of Genesis. Everything goes, or in Revelation, everything goes wrong in Genesis 3 from man's perspective, but as we've already seen, Christ was slain before the foundations of the world. He is our sacrifice. God always planned for him to be our sacrifice. Revelation 22 describes for us the restoration that when Jesus returns, there is no more death. There is no more suffering. There is no more pain. So what we learn from Genesis 1-1 is that God preexisted the universe. That God is and everything else came after him. That God is the only eternal being and that everything else flows from him that he predates everything in the universe the universe has a beginning according to genesis 1 1 and god personally orchestrated that beginning and last week we saw that there's two major views out there as to how we got what we have naturalistic evolution the big bang theory that 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 uh, the evolutionary process produces what we have and then we as believers Christians believe in special creation by a divine being that God creates out of nothing. We saw some of the errors in evolution, that there's gaps in the fossil record, that ultimately it's an attempt to rid the world of God. And what we find in Genesis 1-1 is that there's no room for atheism 
that God does exist. There's no room for polytheism, that he's one God. There's no room for pantheism. He's separate from creation. There's no room for naturalism, that matter is not eternal. We also highlighted the fact that God created for two purposes, to display his glory and to create beings that will know his glory. We said that before creation that God was already glorified within the Trinity, and so God does not need us. God does not create because he's lonely. God does not create because he he needs worshipers. He doesn't create because he needs somebody to love him. That all of those things preexisted us within the Trinity. And so God simply creates because he graciously invites his creation to participate in that loving relationship between the Trinity. Now, we stopped last week with the idea of apologetics. How do we defend our faith in light of so many in our culture holding to that evolutionary mindset? And we didn't get to spend as much time on it as I wanted to. And so I want to kind of begin there today, kind of pick up where we left off last week. I challenged you last week that when we're thinking through apologetics, defending our faith, that many of us are not going to have the time in our schedule to build a a strong presentation to somebody that explains carbon dating, that explains a lot of the issues that pop up in regards to uh, explaining the world's existence. I told you that that many of us aren't going to have time to go back and back and back to the science textbooks constantly and debate with individuals that hold to evolution. In fact, most of us are going to encounter, as we share the gospel, people that believe in God, right? They're, They're nominal believers. They're nominal Christians in the sense that they grew up Christian. They grew up exposed to the Bible. They've just never surrendered to it. They've never really submitted to the lordship of Jesus. Most of us aren't going to come in contact with somebody that we really have to explain the origins of the universe to. But even if we do come upon that, there's no fear that needs to set in with us as to how to approach that. I challenged you last week that ultimately we're called to teach Jesus. We're called to teach Jesus, which means we don't have to worry about having uh, a ton of knowledge about things like carbon dating and the fossil record and how we explain millions of years. That we teach Jesus. And scripture is very clear that it's not two separate things, right? We highlighted some verses last week. We won't take the time to read them all uh, today. But in John chapter 1, we find that everything begins and ends with Jesus. In John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Christ was there in the beginning. Christ is the creator. Colossians 1, the other one that we'll highlight again real quick. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What we learn from these passages, others, 1 Corinthians 8, Ephesians 3, Hebrews 1, everything belongs to Jesus, everything relies on Jesus, everything is done by Jesus, everything is done for Jesus. And so as as I seek to share the gospel I start with Jesus. That's what I'm called to do. I'm called to proclaim Jesus. And the reason that's important, the reason that's important 
is because everybody who has thought about it believes that a man named Jesus existed, right? One of the best classes, one of the hardest classes I ever took in college was by a man named Gary Habermas, who was a world-renowned authority on the resurrection. I mean, just an incredible mind and and debates, travels around the world debating uh, with, with philosophers about the origins of the earth and the resurrection of Jesus. And one of the most encouraging things that he shared in that class is the point of reference that we all have with everybody that even doubts the existence of God. He says, your biggest skeptics. So he says, I've been around the world. The people that are the biggest skeptics about God, biggest skeptics about the origins of the universe, biggest skeptics about Jesus. He gave us a list of things that everybody believes really happened. He says, everybody that's anybody believes that a man named Jesus lived. All right. So basically the Bible says you're a fool if you don't believe in God. You're really a fool if you don't believe that a man named Jesus lived. Even the staunchest, angriest, most um, antagonistic people about Jesus believe that a man named Jesus existed. They also believe that this man, Jesus, died on a cross. They believe that he was buried in a tomb. They believe that his body went missing. They believe that his disciples believed he was back from the dead. And they believe that their lives were radically changed. They, they believe that. They just believe that Jesus didn't come back from the dead. They believe that he wasn't God. But they believe all those things about him. That's a great starting point with anybody that we're trying to share the gospel with. It comes back to what do you think happened to Jesus? Who was he? What happened to his body? Because everybody agrees that a man named Jesus lived, that he died, and that a lot of people thought he was God, and that a lot of people claimed to see him back from the dead. And so we challenge people with their perspective on it. What do you say about that? Who do you think Jesus was? Well, I think he was a good prophet. I think he was a teacher, but not God. Well, he can't be a good prophet. He can't be a good teacher because he taught that he was God. So if he's not God, then he's not a very good teacher. He teaches things that are false. Every world religion, including atheism, has something to say about Jesus. Everyone admits that Jesus lived and that he radically shaped our culture, that our whole dating system is based off of his coming here to this earth. We challenge people about Jesus. And then as we begin that dialogue about Jesus, we point them to a full theology of Jesus. That yes, he was a man of Nazareth. Yes, he walked for 33 years on this earth. Yes, he died on a cross. Yes, he claimed to be God. He is God and he is the creator of the universe. And then we begin to dialogue about creation in the book of Genesis. So at any point, if you feel like you're getting tied up with an apologetic discussion that's bringing into the discussion elements that you're not really sure about, we constantly bring it back to Jesus. He's the best defense of our faith. He's who we're supposed to talk about. He's who we're supposed to proclaim to others. Think about it this way, too. If I've got a guy in my neighborhood who's an atheist, doesn't believe in God, Probably the best thing for him is not to drag him out into his yard and start talking about the complexity of the universe in hopes that he's going to all of a sudden believe in God, right? Romans 1 says, what can be known about God is made aware of in creation, but man has rejected it, right? Man has said no to that. So I should expect my neighbor in my, in my uh, neighborhood to have rejected creation, to reject what, what is known about God through creation. He needs Jesus. He needs to be instructed with Jesus. He needs to know Jesus. The the Jesus that I know, the Savior that I serve, 
the one that has radically changed my life, he needs to know about Jesus. Jesus becomes the best defense for our faith. In your notes there, doctrine of creation. What we're seeing here in the book of Genesis is that, kind of a definition here, God created the entire universe out of nothing. It was originally very good, and he created it for his glory. God created the entire universe out of nothing. It was originally very good, and he created it for his glory. Revelation 4.11 tells us that everything exists for God's will. And what's great about it is that in creating, God creates it in such a way that we get to enjoy it. And by us enjoying creation, he receives glory, right? So it's not just that God creates because he wants glory. He creates us to enjoy his glory. Look what the Bible teaches us in 1 Timothy chapter 4. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 4 it says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God. And prayer. If you skip down to chapter 6 in 1 Timothy, verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes from above. God creates for his glory, but he creates it in such a way that we get to enjoy it for his glory. The Bible says that everything that's received with thanksgiving is good, meaning we're called to enjoy creation. We're not called to worship creation, right? Romans chapter 1 describes a situation where mankind rejects the creator and finds glory and joy in the creation. And I, and I challenged you last week, don't just dismiss that and say, well, because I don't worship idols, I'm not guilty of that. It's, it's a checkpoint for us to make sure that we don't enjoy creation so much, that we don't enjoy the things that God gives us so much that they became, become our source of security. Right? He says, he says, charge the rich to not find their hope in the things that are created, but to find their hope in God. And in the midst of hoping in God, tell them to enjoy what God has given them. I enjoy creation, right? Like, I've had a long weekend of study. I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, hopefully tonight, if I can get away, to go and sit for about an hour uh, and, and hunt tonight. I love being outdoors. I love fishing. I love hunting. I enjoy creation. And I love being able to be in God's creation. And I love being able to take podcasts to listen to or books to read while I'm doing those things. I love to just sit and pray to reflect on God's glory in the midst of his creation. I love sports. I believe God's created sports. God gives us things to enjoy. He gives us the hobbies that we love, the things that that we find uh, um, fun and entertaining. Those are gifts from a good God above. right? He didn't just create us here to... Uh, to be stiff and bored and to, to believe that we're just supposed to give God glory in a, in a static type of sense. God's given us creation and he's called us to enjoy it. 
He's called us to enjoy it. He's called us not to worship it, not to find our hope in it, not to find our joy and satisfaction in it, but to use it as a means of enjoying him, to allow creation to be our channel of enjoying him. He's given it to us. The Bible teaches us that. It should be part of our doctrine of creation, that God's created it out of nothing. It's good. It's created for his glory, and we get to enjoy it. In his creation, he shows us his power and wisdom in Jeremiah ten twelve. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. God's wisdom and power is seen in his creation. Ultimately, we're called to point people to this creator in Acts 14. Verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of light nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. We're talking about our church. We're talking about expanding our church. We're talking about people getting saved because of our church. As we share the gospel, we call people to submit to their creator. He has every right to every individual's life on this earth because he created them. God has creator rights over everything. That's why it's so important that nothing is eternal with God, right? Like if there were other things that existed all the time with God, we'd have no assurance that God had authority over those things. They'd have every right to authority just like God does. That's why Satan is a created being, not an eternal opposite of God. If he's eternal opposite of God, we have no assurance that God has control over Satan. But when, when, we, when we start with God and everything comes from God, then God made everything. God has authority over everything. And I told you last week that, yes, the, the, we're not going to have time to always go back to the science books that we teach Jesus. Psalms 19 says that the creation declares the glory of God. And so there is, a, there is a, an important role that general revelation still plays for us as believers. We should study science. We should allow ourselves to be in awe of what God's created. We should take our kids to the aquarium in Georgia, in, in Atlanta, and allow that to be a means of our family worshiping together as we see the intricacies and the design of God's creation. Why? Because Jesus referred to creation to give assurance to his disciples, right? When they were worried about their life, worried about how they were going to get dressed tomorrow, worried about how they were going to pay their bills, God challenged them to look and see how I care for creation. I care for the little things. Surely I'll care for the things that are far more important to me. As I was reading this stuff, you know, and you go on Answers in Genesis, and they've got all kinds of descriptive things that, that, that show us how great God is. But even in the little things, like there's a, there's a type of beetle that has the two different um, uh, fluids within him that produces a defense system, and if there's not a, uh, uh, an element within there, he would ex- completely explode all the time. Like those, those, the, mi- the mixing of those elements would cause him to not be able to exist. It's the little things that God creates that shows how interested he is in all the details of creation. In little insects, the intricacy, design, and detail of how he's created them, how much more concerned is he with us as his children? The things that we worry about, how much more assurance should we have in knowing that God cares for us when we see how much care he's demonstrated towards creation. 
So there is a role in us continuing to go back to general revelation and science and allowing that to be a means of worship. In your notes there, as we, as we start to work through Genesis 1, um, the challenge that I'm faced with is how are we going to approach Genesis 1? It's the same way that we had to figure out how are we going to approach the passages on the second coming of Jesus. Right? I told you there's a lot of views out there. Um, we talked about the, the pre-trib, pre-mill view, the ah-mill view, the post-mill view. How do we understand the teachings on the return of Jesus? The same's true as we start to work through Genesis 1. For us to understand what's being taught here, it necessitates us come at it from a certain perspective so that we can actually teach some things and learn some things. And so I want to help develop a framework for how we're going to approach this. Are we going to approach this from an old earth perspective, young earth perspective? We're going to approach this from the gap theory, no gap theory. And so today we're going to kind of look at some of the the perspectives and ideas that are out there and then how we're going to approach it as a church. First of all, what must we believe? Same way we did it when we talked about the return of Jesus. I gave you a list of things that regardless if you believe in a rapture or not a rapture, there's some things that should unite us. So we may have some people here that believe in old earth. We may have some people here that believe in young earth. We may have some people here that believe in theistic evolution, that God used evolution to give us what we have. There's others of us that are going to believe in a literal 24-hour, six-day week. So there could be some disagreements, and that's okay, as long as we're united about the things that are really important that that Genesis seems to be very clear about. So number one, God is self-existent and created everything else out of nothing and independence on him. God is self-existent, and he created everything out of nothing and independence on him. So any theological idea, any theological theory about the origins of the universe that does not believe that God is self-existent, that instead would teach that God needs something or relies on something, is not an area for us to be unified in. That's going to cause division, probably. God is self-existent. He doesn't need anything. He's created creation to depend upon him, and he created it out of nothing. We've already discussed why that's important. If anything else existed with God then God is not God over that. Okay. Secondly, God made creation very good to reflect his glory. God created, God made creation very good to reflect his glory. Alright, so we don't believe that God messed up in his creation or that he created evil. We believe that any sin and evil flows out of man's choice and rebellion against God, not because God created those things. I was in in, in talking with the kids this morning. We talked about death. Did God create death? No. Where do we get death from? The kids responded, because of sin, because of Adam and Eve's decision. God created it very good, and then we rebelled against that good creation, and sin entered the world. Third, God is personal. And has always been involved with his creation. We learn very quickly in Genesis 1 that God is very personal and very involved. We'd be very hard pressed to, to see a deistic type God who starts the process and then removes himself completely. Right? That's the deistic perspective that God starts things and then bails out, retreats. 
and just lets everything play out on its own. God is personal and involved. Fourth, God specifically created Adam and Eve as historical figures different from the rest of creation. God created Adam and Eve as historical figures different from the rest of creation. Now, there may be people here that that, that don't believe that. Um, I don't see how you, you, you can't believe that and it not cause severe issues with the rest of Scripture, though. But if you do believe that, don't think you're out there on your own because C.S. Lewis didn't believe in historical Adam and Eve, which is crazy to me to think that he didn't. Um, and, and this is what's so challenging is that I'm approaching this. I was raised a certain way. I'm, I'm obviously approaching it that way. But then finding out that there are so many godly men that I respect greatly that believe very differently than, than what I was raised with. Right? So I, I was raised with the traditional 24-hour six-day literal week of creation. And yet I'm finding a lot of the men that I, that I respect greatly hold to an old earth perspective, hold to a theistic evolution perspective, or at least very open to those things. And that causes me to at least pause, to pause for a second and, and, and examine, do I believe what I believe because I was taught it or because the, the word teaches it? Did I, did I grow up hearing it or does God's word really present it this way? And so I'm having to pause and approach it slowly because I want to teach you faithfully and I don't want to have to backtrack. Um, Luke 3 is the genealogy of, of, of um, Christ and it's traced back to Adam. We've talked about the New Testament writers seem to treat Adam as a historical figure, not as a symbolic representation of mankind that the New Testament authors seem to, to strongly believe that Adam was a real man and that Eve was a real woman and they were the, the mother and, and father of all creation. Number five, all of mankind descends from a sinful Adam and Eve. That's our, our fifth point of agreement. All of mankind descends from a sinful Adam and Eve. Acts 17 Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Paul talking about all of mankind coming from one man. And then number six, our salvation from sin is tied to Christ fixing what happened in the garden. Our salvation from sin is tied to Christ fixing what happened in the garden in Romans 5. And, and the reason the, his, the historicity, I believe is the word. Anybody feel good about that being a legit word? Historicity of Adam. Uh, the, the reason that is so important is because of what's presented in Romans 5, right? In Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Paul goes on to highlight that, that we're saved through the work of Jesus. We have to have a historical Jesus, right? Jesus is not a, a symbolic representation of God. He's a, he's a historical figure. 
flesh and blood, right? Thomas felt him. Even after the resurrection, Thomas could testify that this is a real man, the God-man, a historical figure, Jesus, as presented in Romans 5, as our source of salvation, that he is everything to us. He's the only hope that we have of fixing our sin problem. Adam and Eve sin, and we're all born sinful. We sin because we're sinners. Paul presents Adam as a historical figure because he parallels it with another historical figure, Jesus. If Adam is not historical, then the whole comparison in Romans 5 breaks down. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul continues that that thought process in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All right, next in your notes, what perspective about the means of creation and the age of the earth makes the most sense? All right, we've talked about these a little bit. I'm going to give them to you again. Number one, the gap theory. All right, the gap theory holds to an old earth perspective. The gap theory, if you're still in Genesis, believes in an infinite amount of years undefined at this point between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. All right, the gap theory teaches that God created, and then over a course of a long period of time, it became without form and void. And the gap theory just admits we don't know what happened in all that time. But the gap theory allows that time to account for all of the secular geological records and all the different Jurassic Age, all those ages would fit into the gap time. Between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, everything that secular science tells us, that happened during that time. And then through God's judgment, maybe there was a pre-Adam race that existed. Maybe Satan and angels lived here on this earth, and that's when Satan rebelled. There's a lot of speculation about what happened, but they, they, they developed this theory that there was a giant amount of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And then God creates in a literal six-day week. And gives us what we see around us. So basically, all the animals that are, or the, the animals that are dead in the fossil record, like the ones that have been around for millions and billions of years, the, the way they date it, those all died during the gap time. And then God created, but it's the second creation of God. So basically, Adam and Eve show up in the garden, and you may have seen the picture that Ken Ham puts out where they're all in the garden. And they're saying, wow, God's creation's awesome. And then underneath them is just buried all these dead bones. And it's hard to reconcile that with a very good creation if, if everything had been messed up already. That's the gap theory. There's a big amount of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. The day-age theory also holds to an old earth. Believes that each day represents a long period. Often uh, times an age tied to the geological record. So... Gap theory would say all that Jurassic, crustaceous, all that, all those things fall in the gap time. The day-age theory would say those big periods of time happen in the creation week. So day one was maybe a million years, maybe 10 million years. Day two might have been a billion years. Steadily working its way to what we have today. The day-age theory that when Moses wrote this, he meant for those days to represent long periods of time. The framework theory would say also Old Earth sees the language of Genesis 1 as poetic, as symbolic of how God created. 
I told you the difficulty with the symbolic poetic perspective is at what point does it stop being symbolic and poetic? At what point do we believe that the serpent really talked and that Adam and Eve were really eating of a tree? Or is that symbolic? Because Abraham, and I told you this before, Abraham in Genesis 15 has to be real. Because Paul draws on him time and time again as the way salvation works. And if I can't count on Abraham being real, I can't count on my salvation. So it's very difficult to view any part of Genesis as symbolic and poetic if that's not what the author intended for it to be. And then number four, the young earth theory. This is where most of us probably were raised in, the 24-hour literal days. People that hold to the young earth theory would say that the world is, is uh, probably no older than 10,000 years. Now, here, here, this is important. Evolutionists and creationists would agree that mankind as we know it, like competent mankind that can think and can talk and, and is educated, has only been around for about 10,000 years. That's important to note. Now, they believe in some of these cavemen, like incapable, like half-man, half-animal type individual beings that existed maybe millions, billions of years ago. But creationists and evolutionists agree that competent mankind, what we think of a man as today, has only been around for about 10,000 years. The creationists would say, and everything else has been around for 10,000 years. It all started at the same time. Evolutionists would say, no, it took a long time to get to that point. Now, I've already kind of told you that we're going to approach this from a young earth perspective. The reason being, in, in looking at the theories and the arguments for old earth, they all seem to be most concerned with reconciling the Bible with modern day science. Okay, so as a natural reading of Genesis 1, I don't think you read a gap theory in there. I don't think you, you, you come away from it believing that it took millions and billions of years to get what we have in creation. That instead, the old earth perspective seems to come out of trying to reconcile what science is saying with what God's word is saying. And a lot of times it feels like the science book becomes more authoritative than God's word in trying to mesh the two. Okay? Um, some, some dangers in the theistic evolution perspective that God presided over evolutionary processes. So basically theistic evolution says millions, billions of years that God got it started. He oversaw evolution, but everything we hear in our science books about evolution is true. It's valid. God was just the one overseeing it. God was the Big Bang. Right. And that God at times came in and stepped down and created specifically life, created specifically man. Some dangers with that. Number one, it requires an earth that experienced disease, thorns, death and decay long before Adam's sin. And that's true of, of the old earth perspective to hold to an old earth perspective. You have to believe that things died before Adam. You have to believe a lot of things died before Adam. If you look at the fossil record, and that's the concern, well, the fossil record says millions and billions of years, so how do we reconcile that with the Bible? Oh, all that happened before Adam and Eve, and then God created. The problem with that is you have to admit that all this death, decay, destruction happened before sin. 
we're going to see that part of the consequence of the curse is thorns, right? Weeds, difficulty with the ground. The fossil records that are appealed to as being millions of billions of years ago have thorns in them. It's hard to hold to an old earth perspective and not have to really work out some conflict with what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 teach about thorns and about death. Because those things come after Adam. And again, competent, intelligent man has only been around for 10,000 years. So if competent, intelligent Adam is sinning 10,000 years ago, some of these things can't happen until he sins. It requires us to, to come up with a new definition for how creation longs to be restored. Remember in Romans 8, when we studied Romans 8 a couple of months ago, creation is longing and groaning to be set free from the curse. God communicates to Adam, I'm cursing creation. Creation is going to make it hard on you to provide for your family. Acts chapter 3, verse 21. Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. If death and decay and thorns and, and, and all that type of stuff was happening prior to sin, it's hard for us to reconcile what is creation longing for? Why does creation, what does creation need to be restored back to if all of these things were present before sin? There's some difficulty there in reconciling that with an old earth perspective. Number two, it necessitates that the crowning glory of God's creation which is man, takes forever to get here. Think about that, right? Like Genesis 1, everything gets created, but then what, is, what do we really narrow down and focus in on? Adam and Eve, right? Day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day five. everything gets created, but then day 6, Adam and Eve. And then here on out, it's all about mankind. God created for his glory. He created for man to know his glory. So that's the purpose in creation, Right? wants mankind to know his glory he had these plans in place for eternity imagine if if this is if this is how it is old earth it means it necessitates that god took billions of years in his creative process to get to where he really wanted to start and that was with mankind billions and billions of years wow now mankind is finally here he's been here for ten thousand years and we are anxiously waiting for jesus to come back to hold to an old earth perspective would say that the majority of the time the earth has been here has been for, for no real purpose. That for only about 10,000 years has mankind been here, and I don't think any of us are expecting to have to wait billions of years for Jesus to come back, right? I hope not. I certainly hope not. If it's not in my lifetime, I hope it's in my children's lifetime. But if it's taken us billions of years to get here, it would seem logical that we probably still have a long ways to go. If that's the case. Number three, there's conflicts with the patterns in Genesis 1:24. We're going to see this as God creates, he creates animals to reproduce after their own kind. For theistic evolution to be true, it means that creatures have to reproduce things that are not their own kind, right? They have to evolve into things that they weren't previously. And yet in verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock. And creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. Think about it. Even with all our technology, all the experimental breeding that we do, we can't produce things that are a whole lot different than what they started with, right? We can take different dogs and breed them together. 
We can take different kinds of animals and breed them together, but we can't produce some of the crazy stuff that our kids could draw, right? We can't take one kind of animal and another kind of animal and crossbreed them and produce some crazy type of animal. Even with all our technology, even with us overseeing it and intentionally trying to make it happen, we can't make it happen. Evolution teaches that randomly it came together and randomly it produced these things. The driving force behind evolution is randomness. It's the exact opposite of intentional creation. It's the survival of the fittest. Evolution devalues man and it devalues the weak. Evolution is built on the concept that the weak falls away and the strong rises to the top. That is so contrary to how we're supposed to live as Christians, right? We're supposed to protect the weak. I I had to discipline a kid this week at school, um, just bullying other kids. His dad's a pastor in the area. Um, Wasn't sure how his dad was going to take it, but uh, came in and did what needed to be done. I mean, came in like a bulldog, right? Pulled his kid out of class. Sat him down and had a, had a heart-to-heart with him. And I got to witness that. And I told the guy afterwards, I said, I'm so thankful that I got to be a part of this because, you know, I'm, I'm raising my son. And I want to be able to, to portray the same things you did to him. And, and one of the points that he said, he said, as a, as a believer, as a Christian, as a Christ follower, you are called to protect the weak. You're called to protect the weak. And he looked at me and said, son, you're known right now as one who targets the weak, who seeks, seeks to beat the weak down. And that's the concept of evolution, that the weak falls to the side, that the strong rises to the top. So that, so that we can become better as a human race. And Christ calls us to protect the weak, to value the weak. Theistic evolution doesn't mesh with the geological record. Even in the attempts that, that good-hearted Christian individuals have in trying to bridge what science teaches and what the Bible teaches, it still doesn't. It still doesn't mesh. The geological records that scientists would have us believe is that birds come after land animals. And that's not how it's laid out in Genesis. If you've ever watched Jurassic Park, and and there's a lot of evolution talk in Jurassic Park, they talk about dinosaurs. They became extinct because they turned into what? Birds. The, the, The reptiles evolved into birds, and that's what happened to all the dinosaurs. So even in trying to mesh what science teaches with what God's word teaches, the geological record doesn't work the way that Genesis 1 is laid out. God creates birds, and then he creates the land animals. God creates plants, and then he creates the sun and insects, both of which are necessary for plants to survive. For the pollination, the sun that they need to survive, all that's necessary for that to be around far earlier than it would be in trying to mesh Genesis 1 with science. The complexity of some organs are impossible in regards to evolution. Um, one thing I came across talking about the eye and how complex the eye is, that you would never, the way the evolution discusses and how it's supposed to work, you would never get to the point of a functioning eye because all of the parts that would be needed to evolve wouldn't make sense unless it was functioning as an eye. Right? So evolution believes that, that, creation, that creation adapts to what it needs and it slowly progresses. The eye is so complex that it would never evolve with the, the parts that it would need and eventually develop into an eye because there would be no reason for those parts. Does that make sense? Like it needs all those parts to be an eye, and those parts don't serve any other purpose. So the complexity of creation makes evolution impossible as well. Um, and then lastly, the fossil record reveals that many of the animals that we have today existed millions of years ago with little to no change. 
So even in the midst of the fossil record that, that they believe dates millions and billions of years ago, there's animals in those fossil records that still exist today that never changed. All right, we talked about the gaps in the fossil record. There's no in-between stages for these animals that supposedly turned into other animals. But on top of that, in the fossil record, there's still animals alive today that were alive millions and billions of years ago, according to them, with no change. There's some problems with theistic evolution. All right, I'm going to give you four supports for the literal view, and then I'm going to give you some application, and we'll be done. Support for the literal view of Genesis 1, which is the approach that we're going to take as we move forward. Number one, it's the natural reading of the text. It's the natural reading of the text. What do I mean by that? Everybody in this discussion admits, so I've looked at different authors, different books. Everybody in the discussion admits that if Moses was trying to write Genesis 1 to mean six days, 24 hours, this is how he would have written it. Like, he couldn't have written it any better if that's what he meant. Now, they'll argue that that's not what he meant, but they'll admit that it's really the only way he could have written it if that's what he was trying to communicate. That's strong evidence for it meaning a literal week, six days. That Moses, according to the skeptics even, chose the only language that he could have if he was trying to communicate that. Secondly, God's established week of creation lays the foundation for our week. All right, have you ever thought about this? Like we have, we have seasons, but that's based on sun, moon. Like that's based on creation, the way the seasons work. We, we, we measure our days by us rotating, the sun coming up, the sun going down. We measure our years by how long it takes for the earth to go completely around the sun, right? I hope all this is correct. Like I said, I don't go back to my science book as much as I should. But the way that we, we define those measurements of time, it's based on creation. There's nothing that dictates to us that we should have seven days in a week. There, there's nothing from creation standpoint that would necessitate. So the, so the earth and the sun aren't doing anything that would say, oh, we should have seven days and call that a week. Right? We, it does necessitate we call it a day. We rotate once the, the, um, rotate once the sun goes up, sun goes down. We rotate around the sun at the year. We have seven days in a week. God calls upon this in Exodus 20:11, when he's giving out instructions about the Sabbath day. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What's Israel supposed to do? Back in verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. God seems to be appealing to their understanding of Genesis. He says, why do we have seven days in a week? Because I created in seven days. You rest on the seventh day, just like I rested from my work. You work six, you rest on the seventh. There's an appeal here that God set very intentionally the pattern in creation. That he displayed to us what would be most healthy for us. Right? The Sabbath day was, was meant to be devoted to worship, but there's also a lot of health reasons for why the Sabbath day was set apart. That mankind does not need to overwork himself. That he'll work himself to death. That he needs that rest. He needs that time set apart from his labor, from his work. Third, creation is portrayed as responding to God's word immediately. 
Right? Evolution says that God said, let there be light, and then it took a long time. Let there be animals, and it took a long time. But what we see in Psalms 33, 6 through 9, is that when God speaks, it happens, right? New Testament, Jesus tells the storm to stop, and it stops. It's how we should respond to God. Right? We're the ones that typically take a long time to respond when God says to do something. But not creation. That's never been the pattern of creation. When God says, let there be done something, something is done. And then lastly, number four. The literal view views death as the God-ordained consequence for sin, not part of his good creation. And and this is the, the most important thing to me. is that I believe Scripture is so clear about death entering this world as a result of sin that to say that it existed prior to sin makes it very difficult for me to understand how to interpret Scripture across the board. Now, some would argue, well, what about plants? Plants died, obviously, because Adam and Eve were supposed to eat them, right? So death surely was there before creation. But God tells us that, right? Like God tells us that that plants have been given for food. And and the way it reads, and we'll see, is that it's been given to all creatures for food. And so the implication there is that when God originally creates, that everything's eating plants. And we don't typically, we, we use the phrase that a plant dies. But we don't think of it in the same terms as death of an animal, death of a human. And the implication, as we're reading through Genesis, is that there was no concept of death, that when, when God takes that animal and slaughters it and produces uh, skins for Adam and Eve, that's their first understanding and experience of death. It's not until Genesis 9, after the flood, that animals are even eaten by man, or at least permitted by man to be eaten. It may not even be then until animals start to eat each other. That, that, that death was a foreign concept, and death entered the world because of sin. And that's not to say I don't have some hesitancies with the literal view, right? Like Genesis 1, the first day, there's evening and morning, but there's no sun, right? Like that's, that's, that, that, there's some difficulty there that we'll talk about. Like how do you reconcile evening and morning is understood by the sun setting and coming up, and yet the sun's not created until later in the week. If you look at day 6 and how much has to happen on day 6 for it to be 24 hours, it, it starts to make you throw up some, some question marks as well. Right. Like Adam has to name all the animals. He has to realize that there's not a female for him. He has to go to sleep. God has to create Eve. He has to give all the instructions. I mean, that's a that's a wiped out day. Right. Like Adam was excited about the seventh day and he's only worked one day. Right. Like, wow, that was a busy day. I'm glad we're resting on the seventh day. There's a ton of stuff that has to fit into day six. So I admit that in approaching it with the literal perspective that there are some some question marks that we're left with. There's some things that have to be worked through. But as far as application goes, how do we mesh creationism, this literal view of Genesis 1 with science? Number one, God creates a mature universe. Does the earth look like it's millions of billions of years ago? Old? Probably. I don't have a problem with that because I believe God created a mature earth. We talked about this last week. God didn't create Adam and Eve as babies and then have to wait for them to grow up to instruct them not to eat of that tree. I believe he created them from day one with the ability to talk and understand communicate they were adults they were also created in a way where they could reproduce right so they were at a reproducible age 
when they were created because they were told to go multiply. He created them mature. I don't have any problems thinking that God created the stars that are so many light years away with the light already present for them to give glory back to God. God creates a mature earth. We would expect that it would look older than it potentially really is. Number two, the flood effect. We can't discount that the flood jacks up everything with the geological layers and topography. In Second Peter, we're even reminded that in the end times, people will neglect to remember the flood. Verse 4 of Second Peter 3, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. The Bible says in the end times people are going to stop using or stop realizing that the flood affects a lot of stuff. God creates a mature universe. The flood messes up everything. Think about it too. Jesus created things in a mature state, right? Like even going to the first parable, or not first parable, first miracle. He's at the wedding. He creates wine. And what was the testimony by everybody that drank it? Some of the best stuff we've ever had, right? He creates that, that wine mature, right? He creates it like it's been sitting around for years. He just took some water and turned it instantaneously into wine. So we see this pattern already that, that God is capable of creating in a mature state. He creates Adam and Eve that way, probably creates much of, of creation that we're going to see that way. Trees that are already bearing fruit. The flood messes up everything. Number three, nature is cursed. We have to take that into account too, that a lot of the dating presupposes that things have been decaying this way all the time. And yet we find in Scripture that decaying doesn't start until after sin. And then lastly, Hebrews 11.3 reminds us that even as we strive to understand these things, even as we strive to understand Genesis together, Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Faith isn't blind faith. There is an element of trust there, that as we look at everything, even in the midst of not having all of our questions answered, we trust in the God that we know. We trust in the God that's been faithful to reveal himself. We trust in Jesus for our salvation, the same Jesus that created. We're going to see the Jesus that we've trusted in the New Testament. We're going to see him over the next few weeks as he faithfully creates in the Old Testament. Let's pray together. Father, we, we praise you and thank you again for the opportunity that we have to approach Genesis and to study it together. God, we're thankful for this record of how the world began. God, we're thankful for the practicality that we're going to see. God, we recognize that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 explains to us why we get up and go to work. It explains to us how marriage is supposed to be. That while it happened thousands of years ago, still has such incredible relevance for us today. God, I pray that we would not get too caught up in the, the lofty discussion and talk about how the world began, that we miss Jesus, that we miss the practicality and the application for us today. Father, I pray that you'd be faithful to reveal to us who you are and what you desire for us as we study this. God, I pray that in the midst of studying this, that our response would be to worship you, 
that as we meditate on creation, as we examine your creation, that we would see the heavens declare the glory of you. That we would be faithful to fulfill our part in creation, to know your glory, to embrace your glory. And just as you commanded Adam and Eve to be faithful to take your glory to the ends of the earth. Father, we desire for sovereign hope to be a gospel hub where people are being sent out to plant churches for your namesake. So, God, we continue to pray that you would provide families, families that move to this area, families that respond to the gospel because of people's ministry here in this church. You would provide families to be sent out from this church. God, I pray that we would be faithful with the gospel this week. Teach Jesus to others. And God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be faithful. That he would draw people to salvation through the conviction of sin. That you would cause light to shine into darkness in the hearts of people that we know. That you would call into existence something that does not currently exist, and that's spiritual life in the lives of our family, lives of our friends, lives of our co-workers, lives of those that we enjoy our hobbies with. Help us to be kingdom-minded this week. We seek to live faithfully for you. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church Podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.